Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today, we will be talking about one of the most groundbreaking books of the 20th century, Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, written in 1963. This book sent shockwaves through the world that still reverberate today. And I can't wait to discuss it with my reading partner today, Marta Wild. Hi, Marta. Hi, Amy. So we're going to take turns telling a little bit of Friedan's story. And if it's okay with you, Marta, I'll start off and then you mm-hmm. can take the second half. Sounds good. Okay. So Betty Naomi Goldstein was born on February 4th, 1921 in Peoria, Illinois. She was the oldest of three children. Um, her dad was Harry Goldstein, a Russian immigrant and jeweler, and her mom was Miriam Horowitz Goldstein, a Hungarian immigrant who worked as a journalist until Betty was born. The Goldstein family was Jewish, and Friedan later said that her, quote, passion against injustice originated from my feelings of the injustice of anti-Semitism, end quote. Uh, She graduated summa cum laude from Smith College, which was and still is an all-women's college. She graduated in 1942 with a degree in psychology and then spent a year on a graduate fellowship to train as a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley. As World War II raged, Friedan became involved in a number of of political causes. She left the graduate program after a year to move to New York, where she spent three years as a reporter for the Federated Press. Next, she became a writer at the UE News, which is the media organ for the United Electric, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. She became involved with various labor and union issues, and she also began an interest in women's rights, um, authoring union pamphlets arguing for workplace rights for women. In 1947, Betty married Carl Friedan, who worked in producing theater and advertising. They had three children in 1948, 1952, and 1956. And then in that same year, in 1956, the couple moved from Queens, New York, to suburban Rockland County, where Betty became a housewife, supplementing her family's income with freelance writing for women's magazines. Okay, I'll take over. Uh, For her 15th college reunion in 1957, uh, Friedan conducted a survey of college graduates focusing on their education, subsequent experiences, and satisfaction with their current lives. She started publishing articles about what she called the problem that has no name and got passionate responses from many housewives grateful that they were not alone experiencing this problem. She spent five years conducting these interviews, charting white middle-class women's metamorphosis from the independent, career-minded new woman of the 1920s and the 30s to the housewives of the post-war era, who were expected to find total fulfillment as wives and mothers. Women everywhere voiced a malaise from what Friedan dubbed the problem that has no name. Friedan titled her book, The Feminine Mystique, and published it in 1963. Uh, For a bit of historical context, this is from the foreword to The Feminine Mystique. In 1963, most women weren't able to get credit without a male cosigner. In some states, they could sit on juries. In others, their husbands had control not only of their property, but also of their earnings. Although Ferdinand obsesses about women getting jobs, she does not mention 
that newspapers were allowed to divide their help-wanted ads into categories for men and women, or that it was perfectly legal for an employer to announce that certain jobs were for men only. Even the federal government did it. End of that quote. The book hit a nerve, becoming an instant bestseller that continued to be regarded as one of the most influential nonfiction books of the 20th century. It helped transform public awareness and brought many women into the vanguard of the women's movement, just as it propelled Friedan's into early leadership. In 1966, Friedan joined forces with Polly Murray, Eileen Hernandez, to form the National Women's Organization for Women, with Friedan as its first president. Now, the organization's first action to demand the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission enforce the provisions of Title VII guaranteeing equality in employment. Friedan was co-founder of the National Women's Political Caucus with Congresswoman Bella Abzug, Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, and feminist Gloria Steinem. Through these organizations, Friedan was influential in changing outdated laws such as unfair hiring practices, gender pay inequality, and pregnancy discrimination. However, Friedan was criticized by other feminists for focusing on issues facing primarily white, middle-class, educated, heterosexual women. Radical feminists also blasted Friedan for referring to lesbian women in the movement as lavender menace, citing the fear that if women's movement was aligned itself with gay rights, it would reinforce the stereotype of feminists all being lesbian and they would not be taken seriously. Friedan believed the only hope for change was by retaining the woman's mainstream ties and social acceptability. This alienated her from younger radical visionary feminists. Friedan nonetheless remained a visible, ardent, and important advocate for women's rights, who some dubbed the mother of the modern women's movement. Since the 1970s, she's published several books, taught at New York University and the University of California, and lectured widely at women's conferences around the world. Friedan died in 2006 of congested heart failure. Okay, let's get started. The Feminine Mystique has 14 chapters, but we did have to narrow it down just because it's it's quite a long book. And so we just chose four chapters. Marta will talk about chapter one, which is entitled The Problem That Has No Name. And then I'll talk about chapter four, The Passionate Journey. Then Marta, you have chapter nine, The Sexual Cell. And then I'll take chapter 13, um, which is called The Forfeited Self. Um, So we'll start with chapter one and um, just take it away, Marta. Okay, sounds good. So this is about the problem that has no name. Um, And I think it'll be helpful to provide a little context about the time when Frieden is writing. So here's a quote from the book that describes exactly how women saw themselves and how society viewed them as well. Um, So Frieden writes, concerned over the Soviet Union's lead in the space race, scientists noted that America's greatest source of unused brain power was women. But girls would not study physics. It was unfeminine. A girl refused a science fellowship at John Hopkins to take a job in real estate office. All she wanted, she said, was what every other American girl wanted, to get married, have four children, and live in a nice house in a nice suburb. The suburban housewife. She was the dream image of the American young woman and the envy, it was said, of women all over the world. The American housewife, freed by science and labor-saving appliances from the drudgery, the dangers of childbirth, and the illnesses of her grandmother. She was healthy, beautiful, educated, concerned only about her husband, her children, her home. She had found true feminine fulfillment. 
As a housewife and mother, she was respected as a full and equal partner to man in his world. She was free to choose automobiles, clothes, appliances, supermarkets. She had everything that women ever dreamed up. That's the end of uh, what Frieden said. So even though America was well aware of the potential use of women's brain power to advance the goals of the country, young women were still choosing to, to opt out of the professional career world and opt into the role of housewife. Being a housewife was idealized. As described here at that time, it was the dream of most young women to marry and become the perfect housewife. Here's a little bit from the book, a little bit more from the book. And the 15 years after World War II, this mystique of feminine fulfillment became the cherished and self-perpetuating core of contemporary American culture. Millions of women lived their lives in the image of those pretty pictures of the American suburban housewife, kissing their husbands goodbye in front of the picture window, depositing their station wagons full of children at school, and smiling as they ran their new electric waxer over the spotless kitchen floor. They baked their own bread, sewed their own and their children's clothes, kept new washing machines and dryers running all day. They changed the sheets on the bed twice a week instead of once. They took the rug hooking class in adult education and pitied their poor, frustrated mothers who had dreamed of having a career. The only dream was to be the perfect wife and to be perfect wives and mothers. Their highest ambition to have five children in a beautiful house. Their only fight to get and keep their husbands. They had no thought for the unfeminine problems of the world outside the home. They wanted the men to make the major decisions. They gloried in their role as women and wrote proudly on the census blank, occupation, housewife. That's the end of what Frieden uh, wrote. And I think this imagery here, what she described there, is something we all recognize. Um, it's depicted in great detail in movies and TV shows and magazines. Uh, it makes me think of the women and the mothers that I saw growing up. Uh, the moms on Lassie, Donna Reed, <laughs> Leave it to Beaver. Mm -hmm. um, women who had it all, they seemed so happy in this role of housewife. Uh, but even though you can get like this great pleasure from giving your to make this wonderful home and family. She did pick up on something that wasn't exactly right. Mm. Um, she stumbled upon, uh, maybe through experience, but uh, she introduces the concept of a problem that has no name. And she fleshes out this problem uh, for women once they got on the housewife track. You know, she was a magazine writer who interviewed women for articles and she found that the picture wasn't always uh, rosy. She tapped into the problem, uh, was unspoken mystery problem that many women were experiencing. Through an overhead com overheard conversation in New York City coffee shop uh, was one of the things that started Friedan on her quest to find more fully, to identify more fully uh, the problem that has no name. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and pull from the book here. She writes, this is Friedan. If a woman had a problem in the 1950s and 60s, she knew that something must be wrong with her marriage or with herself. Other women were satisfied with their lives, she thought. What kind of woman was she if she didn't feel this mysterious fulfillment waxing the kitchen floor? She was so ashamed to admit her dissatisfaction that she never knew how many other women also shared it. Um, uh, she continues here. Um, on an April morning in 1959, I heard a mother of four having coffee with four other mothers in a suburban development 15 miles from New York. They'd say in a tone of quiet desperation, the problem. And others knew without words 
uh, that she wasn't talking about a problem with her husband or her children or her home. Suddenly they realized they all shared the same problem, the problem that has no name. They began hesitantly to talk about it. Later, after they'd picked up their children at nursery school and taken them home to nap, two of the women cried in sheer relief just to know that they weren't alone. Um, mm. Other women would say things like, I feel empty somehow, incomplete. Uh, or one might say, I feel as if I don't exist. Uh, a tired feeling. I get so angry with the children, it scares me. I feel like crying without any reason. Uh, and one more example that Frieden gives is a mother of four who left college at 19 to get married. And she told Fridon, I've tried everything women are supposed to do. Hobbies, gardening, pickling, canning, being very social with my neighbors, joining committees, running PTATs. I can do it all and I like it, but it doesn't leave you anything to think about. Any feelings of who you are. I never had any career ambitions. All I wanted was to get married and have four children. I love the kids and Bob in my home. There's no problem No problem. you can even put a name to, but I'm desperate. I began to feel I have no personality. I'm a server of food, a putter on of pants, and a bed maker, somebody who can be called on when you want something. But who am I? Okay, so when Oof. I read that, I find this last passage very vividly shows the desperation of these women that they were feeling with this housewife identity. So when Friedan shares these stories of an unhappy housewives, bewildered with these feelings that, you know, go against everything they've been told, she really struck a chord. Um, she found that many women were unhappy with having it all, having the perfect house, perfect husband, perfect children. It was still unfulfilling. As Friedan discovered these young wives, mothers, women, they were actually really struggling, felt desperate, um, probably the most important piece is that these feelings were widespread um, and shared by many, many women. Uh, and I, this made me think, you know, if I were a housewife reading this book at that time, um, I'd probably be quite relieved to have it all written down, you know, validating the emptiness, the dissatisfaction with life that seems so contrary to the story that I'd been, you know, sold that I'd be so happy. So, um, you know, just a couple more examples um, of the woman Frieden was interviewing, encountering. There was um, this woman that she interviewed uh, from Portland, Oregon, and here's what she said. Um, I think people are so bored. They organize the children and they try to hook everyone else onto it. And the poor kids have no time left to just lie on their beds and daydream. And then another one. Um, I wash the dishes, rush the older children off to school, dash out into the yard to cultivate the chrysanthemums, run back to make a phone call about a committee meeting, help the youngest child build blockhouse, spend 15 minutes skimming the newspapers so I can be well informed, then scamper down to the washing machines. By noon, I'm ready for a padded cell. Very little, <laughs> very little what I've done has been really necessary and important. Outside pressures lash me through the day. Many of my friends are even more frantic. In the past six years, we have come full circle. An American housewife is once again trapped in a squirrel cage. The situation is no less painful than when her grandmother sat over an embroidery hoop in her gilt and plush parlor, muttering angrily about women's rights. So um, I 
think that brings us to our next chapter that we're going to discuss. Yes. Okay. So I have the next chapter, which is entitled The Passionate Journey. And this one appealed to me because she gives like um, an overview of history of the past decades. I want to highlight a couple of quotes from this chapter on the pendulum swings um, that have happened throughout history regarding women's rights. And first is this one. Um, Fridan says, quote, it has been popular in recent years to laugh at feminism as one of history's dirty jokes, to pity, sniggering those old-fashioned feminists who fought for women's rights to higher education, careers, the vote, end quote. Okay, so that was really surprising to me to learn how people in the 1960s viewed, quote unquote, the feminists, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because when I think of feminists, I think of the women who came after the feminine mystique, Mm -hmm. like in the 1960s and 70s, but that hadn't happened yet. And so for Friedan, people were already talking uh, with disdain about the feminists in the 1960s. Um, Another passage that I want to share from this chapter is this one. This is where Ferdinand is singing the praises of 19th century and early 20th century women's rights activists who had, again, had fallen out of favor as the pendulum was swinging in the Mm -hmm. 1950s and villainizing these feminists. It says, quote, The ones who fought that battle cast off the shadow of contempt and self-contempt that had degraded women for centuries. The joy, the sense of excitement, and the personal rewards of that battle are described beautifully by Ida Alexa Ross Wiley, an English feminist. Okay, so now Ferdan quotes this young British feminist around the turn of the century. So this is Ida Wiley. She says, quote, To my astonishment, I found that women, in spite of knock knees and the fact that for centuries a respectable woman's leg had not even been mentionable, could at a pinch outrun the average London bobby. Their aim, with a little practice, became good enough to land ripe vegetables in ministerial eyes, their wits sharp enough to keep Scotland Yard running around in circles and looking very silly." Their capacity for impromptu organization, for secrecy and loyalty, their iconoclastic disregard for class and established order were a revelation to all concerned, but especially themselves. The day that, with a straight left to the jaw, I sent a fair-sized Sid officer into the orchestra pit of the theater where we were holding one of our belligerent meetings was the day of my own coming of age. Since I was no genius, the episode could not make me one— but it set me free to be whatever I was to the top of my bent. For two years of wild and sometimes dangerous adventure, I worked and fought alongside vigorous, happy, well-adjusted women who laughed instead of tittering, who walked freely instead of teetering, who could outfast Gandhi and come out with a grin and a jest. I slept on hard floors between elderly duchesses, stout cooks, and young shop girls. We were often tired, hurt, and frightened, but we were content as we had never been. We shared a joy of life that we had never known. Most of my fellow fighters were wives and mothers, and strange things happened to their domestic life. Husbands came home at night with a new eagerness. As for children, their attitude changed rapidly from one of affectionate toleration for poor dear mother to one of wide-eyed wonder. They discovered that they liked her. She was a great sport. She had guts. 
That's the end of the quote. And I just love that passage. And one thing I thought of, of many, was just how important it is for girls and women today to realize that things that we all take for granted, like running and throwing and really sports of any kind, all that stuff was considered unladylike, unfeminine. Um, and to just run around and be free, like she's describing, would have been considered radical. I It made me think of, I was just at CrossFit this morning, and I sometimes when I'm in there like lifting heavy weights in a group of big, strong men, I look around at the other women and I think we would not have been allowed to mm-hmm. do this that long ago. And it just pushes me and makes me want to work harder. And it, it just brings me so much joy to find this new strength inside of myself and push my body to do things um, physically, but that's kind of a symbol for also intellectually and, and doing things I never dreamed I could do and that I would not have been allowed to do not right. that long ago. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I really, really enjoyed this passage. It's so clear and it vividly describes this rush that these feminist pioneers were feeling. Um, like empowerment is, is palpable. Um, so yeah, this section of the book was actually quite fun to read. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, There's so many more amazing quotes, and there's actually a whole chapter on Sigmund Freud that I wish we could throw in here to the history chapter. I highly recommend reading it. But in the interest of time, let's just wrap up on that chapter and um, move on to yours, Marta, The Sexual Cell. Okay, yeah. So The Sexual Cell is this chapter, and it looks a little bit more closely on how our society and culture you know, manage so thoroughly to convince men and women uh, that they should stay home instead of, you know, pursuing life beyond being a housewife. Um, so um, this chapter, uh, Friedan asks, um, what is behind the perpetuation of the image of the perfect housewife? If women are actually discontented, discontented um, with this perfect stay-at-home housewife role, why does it continue, you know? And then I came away that in a nutshell, there's money to be made. Frieden spent a lot of time talking with top tier advertisers who shared with her all the manipulations that they could concoct to sell products. Uh, these are manufacturers, household products, appliances, clothing, beauty products, pretty much anything. You could reach out um, to marketers and they would always discover a new way to promote uh, you know, whatever they were selling. So she talks about one tactic used by advertisers, and it was called uh, selling professionalization. Well, one tactic used by advertisers that's described in the book was selling professionalization. They would sell products that allowed women to become a professional or an expert in determining which cleaning tools for a specific job. Um, so here's uh, Frieden's take, uh, taken directly from the book. Uh, The professionalization is a psychological defense of the housewife against being a general cleaner-upper and a menial servant for her family. It helps the housewife achieve status. Um, It moves her beyond the orbit of her home into the world of modern science in her search for the new and better way of doing things. Professionalization elevates the prestige of a truly menial job. When she uses one product for washing clothes, a second for washing dishes, a third for walls, a fourth for floors, a fifth for Venetian blinds, etc. <laughs> Rather than the all-purpose cleaner, she feels less like an unskilled laborer and more like an engineer or an expert. And then one more quote here. Uh, Time and again, the survey shrewdly analyzed the needs and even the secret frustration of the American housewife. And each time, if these needs were properly manipulated, she could be induced to buy more things. So 
one of the most important points of this chapter, the sexual cell, I, I see is this, and this is a quote from the book. The manipulators and their clients in American business can hardly be accused of creating the feminine mystique, but they are the most powerful of its perpetrator, perpetuators. It is their millions which blanket the land with persuasive images, flattering the American housewife, diverting her guilt and disguising her growing sense of emptiness. They have done this so successfully, employing the techniques and concepts of modern social science and transposing them into those deceptively simple, clever, outrageous ads and commercials that an observer of the American scene today accept as fact that the great majority of American women who have no ambition other to be housewives. If they are not solely responsible for sending women home, they are surely responsible for keeping them there. That's the end of the quote. So in my world, um, I've seen how effective messaging has been. Um, and although I think we've made you know significant strides the past few decades, it wasn't that long ago that these categories defining male and female were so deeply seared into the psyche of, you know, men and women. For sure. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. For our last topic, um, I'm going to talk about the chapter that's called The Forfeited Self. So I'll start with a quote. Fredan says, quote, if women's need for identity, for self-esteem, for achievement, and finally for expression of her unique human individuality are not recognized by herself or others in our culture, she is forced to seek identity and self-esteem in the only, only channels open to her, the pursuit of sexual fulfillment. And I myself, Amy, I would throw in there <laughs> the pursuit of beauty. That's what I see more like. Mm -hmm. uh beautiful clothes and makeup and like the, the beauty standards that women hold ourselves to are awful Crazy. and ridiculous yeah. too. Unfortunately. Anyway, but Fredan says that, that women ch have to channel all of that energy into, um, also she says, quote, motherhood and the possession of material things mm -hmm. and chained to these pursuits. She is stunted at a lower level of living blocked from the realization of her higher human needs. And that's the end of that quote. And then Ferdinand spends a long time talking about the famous psychologist A.H. Maslow, Abraham Maslow, who famously formulated Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, which I remember learning about like in Psych 101 in college or something. Um, and it's that pyramid um, that starts out with at the base of the pyramid are the most basic human needs for like air and food and water and shelter, et cetera. And then it progresses upward to like the peak of the pyramid through safety and connection to others. And then the fi finally, the highest level of um, human like experience, I guess, is he calls it self-actualization. And that's when a person is able to achieve their potential. And so, um, she quotes A.H. Maslow as saying, quote, capacities clamor to be used and cease their clamor only when they are well used. That is, capacities are also needs. Not only is it fun to use our capacities, but it is also necessary. The unused capacity or organ can become a disease center or else atrophy, thus diminishing the person. And then Fridan comments, um, kind of summarizing Maslow, but went that women in America are not encouraged or expected to use their full capacities. In the name of femininity, 
they are encouraged to evade human growth, end quote. And she points out that personal growth is scary. It requires risk. It requires confidence. It requires being outside your comfort zone. And she points out that the phenomenon that's happening in the country, and especially in the late, you know, in the 50s and early 60s, the marriage age for women had gone way, way down. And she, so she describes that right at the point of adulthood, when people are doing these scary, difficult things, that that's when men are encouraged to lean into that discomfort Mm -hmm. and push through and take risks. And that facilitates growth towards self-actualization. Men are taking their first jobs or they're doing graduate school, right? And they're Mm -hmm. doing internships and they're pushing themselves. And that's right at the age that women, that like the paths diverge and women get married and start having babies, which means they drop out of those environments that would push them to grow intellectually and take risks and then develop into fully realized adults who fulfill their individual potential. And that's why she calls the chapter The Forfeited Self. And even Professor Maslow himself commented that it was very hard in his observation for American women at that time to achieve self-actualization because they're not encouraged to push themselves and to keep growing as individuals. Yeah. You know, um, how can a woman ever achieve you know, this higher self, you know, broader arena when she's saddled with, you know, 90 to 100% of responsibility of raising kids and running the household. <clears throat> and, you know, there's not much time or energy left to thoroughly develop a career or other talents that, you know, would make her feel more whole. Awesome. Thanks, Marta. So that wraps it up. Thank you so much, Marta, for being here. I so enjoyed our conversation. Um, and I'm just really so grateful that you agreed to do this with me. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Amy. Yeah, same here. So thanks for inviting me. <laughs>